Welcome back to Brainwaves. I'm Jim Siegler. Today on the show, a clinical case on the management of seizures. Joining us today is Dr. Chloe Hill, an epileptologist who will be walking us through the case. I'm excited to be talking to you today. A 45-year-old man is brought into the hospital by family members for difficulty to arouse. He is able to say his name and will occasionally follow simple commands, but appears lethargic. In the waiting room, he develops a generalized convulsive seizure with gaze deviation to the right, lasting one and a half minutes. It spontaneously resolves as he is wheeled into the resuscitation bay, and you are called to the scene. Obviously, it would be helpful for us to have a complete personal, family, and social history to address the entirety of this case, but often in the ED, this information isn't available to the resident or the trainee. What are some of the critical historical elements that you would need in order to effectively manage this patient? So the most urgent priority when a patient presents in convulsive seizure is to make sure you've stabilized the patient, and that's your classic ABC training, airway, breathing, circulation. Once you feel a patient is stable, you do want to start thinking about some elements of history, and your initial thought should be, does this patient have established epilepsy, and is this their typical seizure? If the answer is no to those questions, you need to be thinking that you want to get imaging by head CT very soon. The reason I say that is a seizure is a symptom of a disease, and in this case, you would be worried the seizure was a symptom of an acute intracranial pathology that would need to be addressed urgently. For example, if this patient had an acute hemorrhagic stroke or a subdural collection, that would need to be intervened upon in addition to treating seizure. Say this patient did have a history of seizures, how would that alter your approach or make you suspect an alternative etiology for the patient's seizure? Good question. So in a patient who does have established epilepsy, you can start thinking about the most common reasons this patient might present in status epilepticus. And the most common reason would be a missed dose of medication. And so you may want to get more of a history or just decide to empirically treat that patient with antiepileptics. Additionally, there are some other things that commonly precipitate seizures in both patients with and without histories of epilepsy. Metabolic derangement, such as hyponatremia or hypoglycemia, is something you would want to identify and carefully correct. And infection, which you may identify from a careful history, from physical examination, or vital signs consistent with infection, or even an elevated white blood cell count. So given that our patient has no obvious personal or family history of seizures and no obvious triggers, let's get some more of the history from the family. The family says that he's never had a seizure. He has been feeling well otherwise in the past recent days. He does not have any new medications, no recent stressors, and has not been intoxicated, and he does not abuse any uh, illegal substances. So that being said, how would you now manage this patient? I definitely would want head imaging of this patient to rule out an acute pathology. Additionally, we would want to collect some blood work. So we'd want a comprehensive metabolic panel to look for metabolic derangement. We could check a finger stick for glucose, check a CBC to look for elevated white count. And again, we'd want to do a careful general and neurological exam to look for uh, clues as to the etiology of the seizures. As far as treatment, if the patient was seizing for about a minute and a half and has returned to his baseline, We wouldn't necessarily need to treat him urgently with anti-epileptic medications, but certainly would want to complete a thorough evaluation to understand why he was seizing. And if he were not back to his baseline? If he were not back to his baseline, we'd sort of want to take that to the next level and say, in what way is he not back to his baseline? 
If we're continuing to see convulsions, meaning we believe his seizures are ongoing and we've now reached the several minute threshold, I would recommend treating with benzodiazepine. And that can be IV Ativan or if we don't have IV access, intramuscular midazolam. The reason we treat at that point is because our understanding of status epilepticus has evolved over the last several years. We used to think of this as a phenomenon that was dangerous to patients when we reached about a 30-minute threshold. We now understand that there's pathological changes that are occurring much sooner. We now consider convulsive status epilepticus to be seizures lasting five minutes or two convulsive seizures without interim return to baseline mental status. And so in our patient who had the one seizure lasting one and a half minutes, it doesn't technically have status epilepticus. But let's just, for the sake of this case, say that the emergency medicine physician treated the patient with two milligrams of IV lorazepam. A few minutes later, you notice that he has a second generalized convulsive seizure lasting for several minutes, and now he has status epilepticus. So I agree with you now this patient meets criteria for status epilepticus. I would like to take a moment to note that there are different types of status epilepticus because I think that's a critical and sometimes confusing element of treating status. As we've seen in this presentation, there's generalized convulsive status epilepticus in which a patient has altered awareness and has generalized convulsions, as seems obvious from the name, and that we know needs to be treated aggressively and quickly because it has a poor prognosis if left untreated. There's also, separate from that, non-convulsive status epilepticus, and that is a more heterogeneous group of presentations, absence status epilepticus, GPED status without clinical correlate, or EPC, or epilepsia partialis continua. And the time frame for treating that type of status is less straightforward. In convulsive status epilepticus, the 30-day mortality rate has been described between 10 and 20%, with higher mortality rates in those with more protracted status epilepticus, the elderly, and those with comorbidities. Among causes of status, anoxic brain injury carries the greatest risk of acute mortality, ranging from 60 to 80%, followed by stroke at about 25%. Going back to the convulsive generalized status epilepticus, because that's what we're seeing in this patient, there is expert consensus that this needs to be treated quickly. There are several professional society guidelines available to help you with the treatment of this disease entity. In particular, if you're looking for guidelines, you can look at the American Epilepsy Society guidelines or Neurocritical Care Society guidelines. All of these guidelines consist of serial stages of escalating therapy. First-line therapy refers to the initial medication that you give the patient. In this case, our patient's already been treated with the benzodiazepine, which is appropriate. Second-line therapy would be if the patient continues to seize through that first-line therapy, and that's one of the classic anti medications. We typically use Dilantin or Phenytoin, Valproic Acid or Depakote, and Keppra or Levetiracetam for a second-line agent. And then if the patient continues to seize through that, we reach third-line therapy, initiation of an anesthetic agent. Interestingly, there is not a huge amount of evidence for what these agents should be after the first-line agent, for which there's excellent evidence that should be a benzodiazepine. The second-line agent, there are several appropriate options, as I, I listed earlier, and we don't know yet which is the most efficacious choice. In fact, a trial ESET, or Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial, has begun recruiting patients 
It's a multi-center, large trial, recruiting patients and randomizing them to uh, phenytoin, valproic acid, or levetiracetam with the goal of establishing which is the most efficacious therapy. So hopefully soon we will have an answer to that question. So the patient has been given 2 milligrams of IV lorazepam, followed 5 minutes later by 3,000 milligrams of IV levetiracetam. It has now been another 5 minutes. The patient's arms and legs are no longer moving, but there is sustained right gaze deviation. His medical exam is notable for normothermia, blood pressure of 161 over 75, and pulse 110 and regular. Labs have returned and are notable for a leukocytosis of 15,000 per milliliter, a glucose of 142 milligrams per deciliter, and normal renal function. An arterial blood gas demonstrated a pH of 7.29, PCO2 of 53, and PaO2 of 71, consistent with an acute respiratory acidosis. The serum CK is 14,000. So it is not uncommon to see an elevated peripheral white blood cell count in a patient who is seized, and even we may see white blood cells in the CSF. However, when you see these findings, it's critical to consider whether or not this represents a systemic infection or meningitis and treat appropriately. An elevated CK or a metabolic acidosis from a lactic acidosis can be seen from the forceful muscle contractions that occur with convulsions. As far as the vital signs for this patient, fortunately this patient is currently hypertensive. Often in the context of convulsive seizures, patients will become hypotensive and that's very important to attend to because as treatment is administered to this patient for seizures, that can exacerbate hypotension and hypotension may need to be treated emergently along with treatment of seizures. When someone presents emergently in convulsive status epilepticus, the top priority is truly to stop the seizures. And if those seizures persist beyond first and second line agents, and the patient has what we would then call refractory status epilepticus, further treatment is necessary. And in that case, it would be intubation of the patient and initiation of an anesthetic agent such as propofol or midazolam. Both of those agents, although midazolam more than propofol, are likely to cause hypotension. However, those are still the appropriate treatment. There's one other point in the history that I'd like to return to, which is the patient's ongoing gaze deviation to the right. I think that is an important hint that this patient still could be seizing. And in fact, in 30 to 50% of patients presenting in convulsive status epilepticus, they do continue to have non-convulsive or electrographic status epilepticus after their convulsions cease. Although you no longer see the patient convulsing, they continue to have seizure activity electrically that can be seen on EEG. And that's why it is so important to initiate continuous EEG monitoring on these patients even after their convulsions have stopped. Okay, so our patient is then connected to continuous EEG, and he's also intubated and sedated using intravenous propofol. He's taken to the medical ICU for further care. While this is being set up, you also recommend a STAT head CT. The head CT confirmed a partially calcified lesion of the left frontal lobe with mild mass effect and midline shift, likely oligodendroglioma. There are no other abnormalities. 
This head CT is helpful in that it reveals the likely etiology of the patient's seizures and is consistent with the manifestation we've seen of a right-sided gaze preference, which can be caused by activation of the left frontal eye fields. I do think it would be useful to obtain further imaging, specifically a brain MRI. It is helpful in this case to see that there does not appear to be an acute bleed on this head CT, although we do see calcifications, and there doesn't appear to be a large amount of edema. Both these characteristics can be further clarified with brain MRI, but those considerations are obviously important for managing further treatment. For example, if there were a significant amount of acute edema, we might consider treating this patient with steroids, and certainly a bleed may have other treatment indications. In addition to the brain MRI, what other diagnostic tests would you consider for this patient? It would be very useful to correlate the EEG to the head CT, although it seems nearly impossible. This patient could have a second source or second uh, etiology for seizure. It would be reassuring to see that the seizures were indeed coming from that left frontal region that's indicated on the head CT. If the head CT were not immediately revealing of an etiology for status epilepticus, it would be important to press further with the workup for this patient. In particular, a lumbar puncture would be indicated to rule out any type of central nervous system infection that would require its own emergent management. Now back to the EEG for this patient. Besides telling you whether the patient is actually still seizing, how could continuous EEG help in the management of this patient? When a patient's on continuous EEG for subclinical or non-convulsive status epilepticus, the EEG is really the only tool you have to evaluate whether or not a patient is responding to your treatment and whether or not you are administering the treatment that you intend to administer. Certainly, we want to look for cessation of seizures on EEG, but in a patient who's developed refractory status epilepticus or even super refractory status epilepticus, which is a patient that seizes through the third line agent or the anesthetic agent, we would like to achieve what is called burst suppression in our efforts to treat this patient and end their status epilepticus. Burst suppression refers to a pattern on EEG that can be described as intervals of very suppressed EEG with very low amplitude and low frequency, almost looking like flat lines, that then will be broken up by short, several-second bursts of higher amplitude, higher frequency activity. In describing a burst suppression pattern, often we'll describe a ratio of burst to suppression to give a sense of how much of the record is in that suppressed or flat state compared to the bursts or higher amplitude, higher frequency state. Classically, when we're treating a patient with refractory status epilepticus, we would like to achieve a burst suppression state for 24 hours and then slowly wean off of that pattern for 24 to 48 hours. The patient's EEG for the first several hours, there were intermittent bursts of electrographic seizure activity originating from the left frontotemporal region where the mass was located on the head CT. 
The ICU attending increased the propofol infusion at your request, but he asked if there was anything else you would recommend as far as treatment goes. This brings up a very important point in treating status epilepticus, which is that often the agents we use to rapidly control seizures are not the agents that are going to control the seizures effectively in the long run. So what I mean by that is initiation of an anesthetic agent such as propofol, or sometimes we use midazolam, is critical for controlling those seizures up front. But those medications are not a long-term option for patients. So once the seizures are under controlled and the patient is in a secure place, it's important to start adding in antiepileptic medications that the patient can be on in the long term and that will sustain seizure freedom as the anesthetic agents are weaned. There are several options for which medications can be used to replace or layer on the anesthetic agents. And at this point, it's really important to consider other aspects of the patient's medical status and any future plans for treatment. In a patient who has liver failure, you certainly would want to avoid any medications that could aggravate that or would have unpredictable metabolism. In this particular patient, we now know this patient has a tumor that will certainly require some sort of treatment, whether it be radiation therapy or chemotherapy, and it would be very wise to have a discussion with the treating oncologist or neurosurgeon regarding what the treatment plan is and make sure that you're choosing medications that will help the patient and not inadvertently complicate their treatment. For example, some medications such as phenytoin can interfere with chemotherapy. Additionally, we would want to consider how these medications should be administered, and medications that have IV formulations are probably the most useful in this type of patient. So what would you like to add on to the levetiracetam? In this case, I would like to choose an agent that I think is highly unlikely to interact with any type of chemotherapy, and I think lacosamide would be a safe choice in this patient. The patient remains seizure-free for 24 hours while on maximum dose levetiracetam and lacosamide, and was extubated 48 hours after admission. An MRI of the brain was performed and confirmed features consistent with an oligodendroglioma. Neurosurgery was consulted, but it was not recommended to the patient given the location of the tumor. He was evaluated by the oncology team and is planning to undergo stereotactic radiation and chemotherapy after discharge to inpatient rehab. Now that our patient is no longer in status epilepticus, would you be able to comment on his risk of future seizures? Unfortunately for patients with brain tumors, their seizures are often fairly refractory to medication, and I think in this case, this patient may have difficulty maintaining seizure freedom going forward and may need additional antiepileptic agents. Interestingly, seizures are a good prognostic factor for patients with brain tumors, but that's likely due to two reasons. One is seizures are much more likely for low-grade brain tumors than high-grade brain tumors. And secondly, a seizure can often lead to an earlier diagnosis. In this patient with a tumor that is not amenable to neurosurgical resection, I do worry that they would have difficult to control epilepsy going forward.
Again, that was Dr. Chloe Hill reviewing the management of a patient in status epilepticus. If you haven't already, be sure to check out episode 14 on antiepileptic drug-drug interactions so you'll know how seizure medications can affect each other. That's all we have for this week. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Steve Combs. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.